Hello and welcome back to our Sabbath School from Home podcast. This quarter, with a theme on education, we've been trying to go back to school, so to speak, and dig into things, insights that have arisen from some of our areas of expertise or interest. Today's theme is education in arts and sciences. And to the extent that some of us have had education in some of these fields, we could perhaps speak about various things that we've learnt. But we'd like instead to turn back to the Bible and see what we can find there about this topic of learning, education and training and wisdom in arts and sciences. It's a little bit of left field and we're going to have some fun. I'm Lachlan and I'm recording this from Sydney. Yeah, g'day. I'm Ken. I'm recording from Launceston, uh, where Cameron usually joins us. He's not with us this week uh, because he's um, got a school commitment. We, with the camp, we actually went up the other night and flew over the area that he's going to be camping in. Uh, that was a lot of fun. A very pleasant <laughs> evening. <laughs> of course you did. Uh, I'm Luke, and unfortunately, I'm still calling in from Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah, we're looking forward to you finally getting on that aeroplane, Luke, and, and coming, back to, coming back to Australia. My word. Let's kick off in a place that is actually very close to this topic, but feels a bit tangential to start with. Daniel chapter 1. Let's have a read through. Daniel chapter 1 is well known, I'm sure, to many of you, as it is to us. And it's the introduction to the story of Daniel and has the famous part of the story about Daniel and his three friends choosing to eat differently from many of their peers. But let's zoom in to the part of the story that comes just after that bit about the food. So this is Daniel chapter 1, verses 17 to 21. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So there's actually something hidden there in that last verse. If you're familiar with the story of Daniel and the history that it's set in, that is a massive statement about Daniel's longevity in service to this kingdom. Uh, because he, he outlasts a number of kings and an invading army that replaces one dynasty with another. So he was absolutely an outstanding person in this context. So what else are we noticing as we're reading these verses? Well, uh, since, since I was the one who suggested this story, I can go ahead and point out some things. So the first one is the education that these young Israelites were receiving was not a Jewish one. It was a Babylonian education, a heathen education, if you will. Um, And there is no indication or implication in this story whatsoever that they refused to study any of it or that they, they suffered by studying any of it. The moral stand they take in this first verse is on the lifestyle. It's not on the learning or the knowledge. And everything in the story indicates that this education that they received, three years, so basically it's a, it's a college degree they've done here, being young adults when they started, they excelled at. They, would have, they were the top four in, in their class. 
a remarkable achievement for people who probably didn't speak the language when they arrived. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you see this a bit um, a bit throughout. In the next chapter of Daniel, it's again very clear that Daniel and his friends are lumped in with the uh, the wise men, the astrologers, I guess, in various translations, the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans. These are categories that we typically think of as being fairly different from from the Jewish people in the Old Testament. So am I, do you agree with me? I'm, I'm kind of seeing Daniel and his three friends lumped in into those categories in terms of, in, in the eyes of the King Nebuchadnezzar and his, and his kingdom. Well, they, they're certainly uh, marked for death along with the astrologers who couldn't interpret the dreams and visions in chapter two. Mm. Yeah, the, there's, there's no indication that as far as the society they lived in was concerned, they were any different from any of the other people in their class, which would have been sort of a kind of indentured academics, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> in that their only real purpose is to serve the royal administration, and they can't do anything else with the knowledge and training that they've been given. But nonetheless, they're very important people yeah who are in charge of important things because nobody else can do the job of administering an empire and advising a king yeah except for this this group it's quite interesting luke that you point out that the that the duration of their education is a pretty close map to a bachelor's degree in australia today i i, I just noticed <laughs> and in verse 17 where we picked up the story uh, god gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom and that sounds like a pretty close overlap with certain degrees that exist today. A Bachelor of Arts, for example, perhaps. Wisdom, I guess this is a bit arguable, uh, but there's modern studies, I guess, in, in philosophy would be one aspect of that. Or natural philosophy, as we've inherited in our scientific culture, what we call science today. Well, I mean, wisdom is used in the Bible as a catch-all for, you know, it, it, it certainly does mean wise in the sense that we tend to use it in modern language, which is sort of understanding of people and meanings of communication and things like that. But it's also used in the Bible for purely intellectual knowledge as well. Um, I, in fact, one of our recent podcasts, we, we saw an example of its use in that sense in uh, Proverbs, I believe. I mean, the, the other thing that I recall is that the Babylonians were famous for their mathematics. Ah, of course. And, and it, so any high-class education in Babylon would have included a study of mathematics. They would have learned that lovely base 60 number system with all its neat divisions. Mm. They would have learned the astrology, uh, you know, the, the, they would have learned finance and, and accounting I mean, they would have learned the highest standard of scientific pursuit that existed in that culture at that time. It was a royal education. Yeah. At which they excelled. At which they excelled, and at which, for the rest of the book of Daniel, they use for the glory of God. Yeah, they certainly do. I, I was thinking of the um, part in Daniel 4, uh, a few dreams in to Nebuchadnezzar's story, where Nebuchadnezzar has now had a dream about a tree which gets cut down. And Daniel explains the dream. And at the end of that explanation, uh, in Daniel 4, verse 27, 
Daniel actually adds his own, it's sort of almost explicitly, the dream translation is God. And uh, Daniel is just the messenger. And he makes that very clear. But in verse 27, he says, Kim Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. And that is not included as part of the divine interpretation of the dream. That is, that is included as Daniel contributing a bit of wise advice. And it's easy to look Some at it and say, well, it's just, it's just sensible, good, common sense advice. But it's also re- revealing of the kind of dynamic that exists. Here is a person in a culture of that kind standing up and feeling free to give the king some advice. So clearly, this is something that Daniel in particular, and presumably his three friends and and the class of citizen to which they belong, they're well educated and they say smart things and the king has them around for exactly that reason. Hmm. I think it's interesting that you talked about after a few dreams in, but verse 17 specifically makes it clear that Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Uh, And that's lumped in with his knowledge and understanding of literature and learning. Uh, Today, uh, there are, in addition to the superstitious dream interpretations that uh, exist in some crystal shops, there's also uh, a very clear psychological science uh, that deals with uh, dreams and and their significance. And uh, it seems that Daniel was a person who uh, had that as well, not just his connection with God. I like that example of him certainly applying perhaps what you get the sense of from the combination of what you're just talking about there, Ken, and that story, Lachlan, about him literally going, okay, here's what the dream means. Here's also my advice to you, is that he genuinely cares about the well-being of the king. Mm. And and he has the courage to tell the king things that he probably doesn't want to hear, (laughs) which is, is rare even in a world where powerful people don't routinely kill people for annoying them, much less the world where they do, which is the one that Daniel was living in. And I just, I, I love the story of Daniel and his friends and always have because their, their character, their morality, uh, their lifestyles and their service to God are, are never compromised uh, by sort of their existence in this heathen hierarchy and society and their service to this, this um, sort of uh, not particularly nice person, or these not particularly nice people who are the kings of, of Babylon. You know, they existed in an environment that growing up in a church, you are taught to fear. You're taught to fear this environment because it will be a negative influence on you and it'll be dangerous and it will lead you astray and it's full of temptations Mm. well they lived in that precise environment they were an integral part of that environment they had all the learning and knowledge of that environment and yet they served god faithfully at every step yeah and there's something interesting here because they didn't just serve god faithfully to the degree that can be 
hoped for by someone who has been corrupted by studying literature and wisdom. Um, you know, it's not as if we sort of reluctantly admit them to the halls of faith, fame, and and heroism. They're absolute icons. They're bastions of this thing. Daniel is one of the most remarkable characters in the Old Testament, in my opinion. And his faith, his life of faith, and his conviction of God's action and connection to his life is, is just never questioned. And throughout the whole book, you never sort of feel this sense of, oh, well, you know, if only Daniel had not been trained in the in the halls of a pagan king, imagine what he could have done. Imagine how much greater he could have been. That's not the sense that you get after reading the book of Daniel. Your comment there, uh, Lachlan, shows the error in what I said previously in drawing a distinction uh, between his learning in being able to understand visions of dreams of all kinds and his connection to God, because in it is his connection to God. I mean, God's the God of the universe. He has all of that knowledge. He has all of that wisdom. He knows about all these things. And that connection to God isn't something separate. It's indeed uh, a central part, not just a supplement uh, to, to the knowledge that he's gained elsewhere. Um, it, mm. It's a connection to the real source of that knowledge. And that comes out, in fact, in Daniel chapter 2, um, where Daniel praised the God of heaven in verse 20 and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. Huh. Mm. Which is also almost the exact words in Proverbs mm. that, we've, that we've read recently. Yeah. Yeah, so this is an interesting point for me to steer to a different story because in the story of Daniel, uh, as excellent as it is, this, uh, shall we say, more secular education, more, uh, the, uh, the training in the arts and sciences, so to speak, uh, the literature and wisdom, is coming out from outside the Jewish religious community even though we're observing that it's it's not necessarily corrupting Daniel and his three friends. In fact, it's providing them an opportunity to witness really powerfully to a to a king who ends up experiencing at least something of a of a personal transformation. So it's a really interesting story. But I'm I'm thinking about the story of Gideon in the book of Judges. And the little detail early in that story where Gideon asks for a sign from God. And it's kind of interesting that he asks for two. And I guess it could be seen that Gideon's faith was not perhaps quite as strong as some others. And that would perhaps be a reading of this story. But in this context today, what I'm interested in is that Gideon does a systematic test. So he lays, he lays a fleece and asks for it to be wet with dew and the ground around it to be dry. And it was so. And then he squeezes out the fleece and he thinks, you know what, uh, I'd like to have this run again. Uh, if you if you think about it from a, an experimental science sort of perspective, Gideon's, Gideon's wanting to double check his results. He's wanting to be really certain of what's going on. And he's not just repeating, he's not asking for the same sign again. Because that would be less valuable to him than getting an additional data point from a 
second experiment. So he asked God for the inverted sign where the ground is wet with dew, but the fleece is dry. I can't help seeing Gideon demonstrating a scientific thought process here in terms of working through the evidence he has at hand to reach the sort of conviction that he needs to get to, to then be the character of Gideon in the following parts of the story. Well, it's a process of, uh, I don't know the exact term, you would lock, but a a process of elimination. He says, well, essentially the, the, the naturally occurring conditions of two very similar nights in a row could not possibly produce the opposite result Mm. in this experiment. So if it does produce the opposite result, this must be the intervention from God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've heard some, I've heard some people say, ah, well, he realizes that he did the wrong test first and that the the ground may have been dry the first time around because the fleece had soaked up the water. Uh, Okay. Perhaps. But I, I like to think of it as Gideon, like you say, is deliberately asking for inverted, inverted outcomes given the same kind of observable natural inputs and th- concluding from that the 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 evidence of the supernatural input that he is seeking because it is true that this messenger of god is asking Gideon to do something pretty dramatic and it's probably not really indicating a lack of faith rather a, a deep conviction that he needs to be very sure that he is hearing the word of God. Mm. And, and I think we should respect that because there are, there are people in the world who claim they've heard the word of God and we think they're lunatics. <laughs> I love in this story as well, verse 39, upon, upon deciding to do the second test, Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Very polite. I, I think it pays to be polite with the God of the universe sometimes. <laughs> well, absolutely. But he goes ahead and does. God accedes to him. It's not as though God says, no, because you didn't have faith in me, I'll get somebody else. Mm. I'll punish you for you your life. Think of faith. Abraham doing the same. That says, all right, do, do, do your second test. No, no problem. I'm, you know, I'm the God of heaven. Of course, yeah. it's within my power. Hmm. Will do what you need to be satisfied. Hmm. There's other stuff in the story of Gideon as well that's quite scientific or rational in the process. The sort of the selection of the three hundred men, where it's this sort of this testing them and then observing, you know, who's which ones are the sort of wary, alert ones with self control and discipline, and hmm. uh, you know when they're drinking the water and, and all the rest of it. Um, you know, and yet nobody nobody goes around saying, "Well, Gideon lacked faith." You know, it's, this is a story of a faithful servant of God who who achieves a great victory for the people of the Lord. Um, there's nothing in the story that indicates what Gideon did with the fleeces was wrong. There's nothing in the story that indicates what Gideon did with the with the selection of the three hundred men and the drink of the water was anything but what God wanted him to do. And the very sound principles of military strategy or tactics, I guess, at, at work in the process of choosing the small hand-picked team of, of the best soldiers to do a night raid mm. and cause confusion. Because what ends up happening is, for lack of actual enemies to fight, the... Um, the Midianites. The Midianites and Amalekites, right. For, for lack of actual enemies, because there were only 300 Israelites... They started fighting each other because they assumed they were under attack by a big force in the darkness and in the confusion, mm, right? Mm. 
So there's all sorts of reasons to take, uh, practical reasons to take a small deal. It wasn't just an act of faith. You know, sometimes we read that story as he only took 300 because they didn't, it was just to show faith in God's power, right? Mm. But in addition to that, it was also the right number of people to take for that type of attack. Yeah, yeah, that's a good insight. So not exactly scientific, I guess, but very rational and practical. Mm. And, and showing a very good understanding of, you know, psychology and military tactics and and all sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah, and again, it doesn't it doesn't seem to be detracting from Gideon's faith. It's part of his faith. Just reading through it as again, the story of the three hundred. He has two selection processes. One is to first take only volunteers, mm. which is a very sound military strategy. People who are willingly there will fight better than ones who have been forced to go there. And then the second one is the test. With the water, yeah. see who drinks from their cupped hands. Yeah, which is testing for sort of awareness and 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 self control and and all the rest of it. So it's it's a very clear, rational, sensible, clever process. Well, Luke, that's interesting that you that you highlight those elements in the story of Gideon. I um, on a previous episode of this podcast told the story of meeting the Reverend Professor Sir Dr. John Polkinghorne, <laughs> a remarkable physicist turned theologian. And when I did meet him, I, I asked if he would be willing to sign a copy of one of his books that I owned. And he did. And he wrote in it 1 Thessalonians 5.21, which says, uh, But test everything, hold fast what is good. Uh, and in a broader context... This is final instructions and benedictions at the end of the book of First Thessalonians. So, you know, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. It Even beyond just that verse, 21, it, it speaks of an openness, a, a seeking, a, a, an openness to learning, a, but, a, but a discipline of testing and weighing and evaluating, and in, in order to be sure that anything that is good is retained. And obviously there's some element there of the scientific way of thinking. And So um, there's another little instance, that's a New Testament example in the Bible, of this idea of maybe uh, scientific thinking being a part of a life of faith rather than a compromise to a life of faith. Do you have any other Bible passages that have occurred to you in the context of this exploration of learning arts and sciences? The one that particularly came to my mind uh, was Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Ah, you did um, it again. <laughs> Luke, what? <laughs> <laughs> in which uh, uh, it said, you know, Jesus grew in wisdom and uh, and stature, uh, and in the uh, sight of God and men. I, I've not quoted it correctly. Uh, but that was one that came to mind. So it wasn't an Old Testament one, it was a New Testament one. Mm. And I thought it was interesting that they talk about, you know, we were talking about Daniel and his wisdom uh, and learning. Uh, and here we see Jesus grew in wisdom 
and stature and in favour with God and men. If Jesus is who we believe him to be, we ought not be surprised that he is not just the most wise, but the most learned, uh, the most intelligent mm. of all human beings, um, who has amazing uh, knowledge, uh, things that would blow the socks off the most learned and uh, quantum physicist, uh, the most learned architect, the most learned lawyer. Um, he is somebody who grew in uh, wisdom and stature and in favour of God. Uh, God saw that wisdom uh, and promoted that wisdom and was behind that wisdom. And, and I think we need to recognise that Jesus is an amazing intellect uh, and an amazing logician. You see it in his, uh, in the way he deals with uh, people of all different sorts. And, and I think sometimes we, we neglect that. We see him sort of floating around in some ethereal, you know, almost half-minded way, uh, spiritual and, and, and not with any real practical uh, wisdom to apply in the world. But, if he is what we say him to be, and we take Luke chapter 2 and verse 52 to be saying what it must say, then he is somebody who could hold his own at Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and Yale. Um, mm. and, and, and we ought recognise that. And, and Luke, you were going somewhere else. <laughs> well, I, I not really, because uh, it's... It's very related to, you know, Jesus as, as uh, the, the human with the greatest knowledge and understanding. But I, I was going to go to Genesis um, 2 verses 19 and 20, where the very first instruction or purpose that God sets out for his newly created people is to engage in the scientific process of taxonomy and name the animals. Uh -huh. <laughs> I like it. That's a cool way to put and the, it. it. It specifically says he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Yeah, right. And the, to me, that's, that speaks of something more than... I mean, obviously, there's some, there's some theological weight behind that activity as well. But um, it speaks to more than just allocating a name have you guys seen there's a guy on i guess on youtube or facebook or something that's been doing these videos of imagining a person who is responsible for dreaming up the packaging that things come in no, you've got to have a search for this it's very entertaining <laughs> he, he takes on the persona of someone who's highly intoxicated and he sort of interviews and uh, you know so what what should um what should milk come in oh well it should come in a box with the with the lid folded down um, okay, what about if it's more than one litre of milk? Oh, well, then it must come in a plastic container with a handle. Okay, so if we've got if we've got more than one litre of fruit juice, then we put it in the same plastic container with a handle? No, a plastic container, but no handle. <laughs> and, and it goes on and on. I think there's now a number of episodes of this. But the, the point is that's, that's making fun of a process of naming without system, without structure, without organization. <laughs> what I see here when the man is instructed in Genesis to name the animals is not that. It, it's more than just giving name, isn't it? It's, 
categorizing, system, systematizing, organizing, understanding, making sense of this world that the person has just been created into and has been and has been placed in. There's all of these aspects. So I think when you said um, taxonomy, Luke, you, you weren't really exaggerating in that sense. I genuinely see here this process of um, discerning order and system and understanding and patterns and all of those things which are really intrinsic to the way humans interact with the world. And if you're going to successfully do what God gave man to do in Genesis 1, 28, to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground, you're going to need to develop that sort of scientific knowledge uh, that will enable you to do that effectively. Mm. What, what really strikes me about these two verses, which I've never noticed before, even though I, I knew I knew because when we were preparing for this, I had in my memory that somewhere in early Genesis, God gets man to name the animals. But the verse specifically points out that God didn't name them first. The first people, the first entity in the entire Bible to give names to God's new creation is humans. Mm. And that is, that is as God intended it. He created them so that they could look at his creation and understand it. And it, I can't think of a greater endorsement for scientific pursuit than that God intended it for us. Yeah. From the very beginning. That really sparks a thought off in my mind, Luke. It's, it is remarkable that the universe is in fact as comprehensible as it is. Now, I acknowledge there's still a great number of things that are not very well understood by anyone, scientists or, or others. But to the extent that we do understand how the physical universe works, it's remarkable that it is that accessible. You know, if you, if you think about it, the, the degree of understanding we have about the natural world is far beyond what is necessary for surviving in that world. You know, it's not essential knowledge that we absolutely require. The, the ability to understand the kind of process that gives rise to gravitational waves, which can be measured but not felt by our senses, indeed require the most extreme uh, measurement sensitivity ever engineered by, by humans ever, to even be able to measure gravitational waves. And not only can we measure them but understand pretty robustly how they are formed um and and the the general relativity upon which their theory is fundamentally based that's not essential but it sure is interesting and it is remarkable that the universe is able to be understood to such an esoteric degree i i think work cam here he would probably take on the role of our resident mathematician and highlight the way in which real pure mathematicians uh, keep being more and more and more creative, trying to think up quirky maths ideas that are not useful. Uh, applied mathematics is, of course, just a, a dirtying and sullying of the mathematical purity of the process. It's mere engineering. And the problem is, yeah, the problem is that these mathematicians keep being... Um, undone because it turns out again and again and again the creative 
games that are played in the human imagination at the cutting edge of pure mathematics find themselves being the most useful sort of language and tools and um, descriptors when we're trying to understand aspects of the natural world. I mean, a famous example is, is imaginary numbers, so-called because they don't live on our real number line. You don't count with them. If you want to get an imaginary number, you just take the square root of minus one. Uh, it sounds, to people who first meet this stuff in, in advanced mathematics, like a, a quirky game invented to torment students and, and entertain mathematicians. It turns out alternating current electricity, on which all of our global electricity grid operates, is best described using complex numbers, using imaginary numbers. And so all electrical engineers do this stuff day in, day out. It's the, it is the natural language <laughs> of alternating current electricity, and therefore it's incredibly useful all over the place. And I could go on and on and on and on with examples like this. It's, it's bizarre no that the universe is able to be understood. And it's not bizarre, Luke. It's not bizarre at all if you are seeing the universe as being created by the same mind and wisdom and intellect that gave mind and wisdom and intellect to humanity for the purpose of understanding the creation mm. and and that uh for the higher purpose uh of being able to relate with love uh, think about it this mm. way i'll see if i can express this uh, clearly uh, if you were creating a world in which or, or a an environment in which love was to be the ultimate value then one thing you would need to do is to uh, ensure that there was an ability of persons or minds uh, to relate that would require that there be some uh, independent properties uh, that can be known and ascertained uh, with clarity and comprehended uh, by those minds, uh, but interacted on and changed in predictable ways uh, by those minds so that they can then uh, see the effects uh, in that environment created by the other minds. Uh, and that is going to be a fundamental requirement of a universe that is designed for the purpose of love. Um, that is precisely the sort of comprehensible, testable, understandable, uh, to a high degree, sort of universe uh, that we have. Um, now, that's not a proof of God's existence, uh, but it certainly is, uh, and it may just be that that's how the world is because that's how the world is. Um, but it is consistent uh, with the way that the scriptures talk about the world existing and its purpose. I would say that you can't love anything without understanding. There is no love without understanding uh, because it's only when you know someone that you love them. Mm. And it's only when you understand I haven't, you know, dedicated my life to scientific pursuits, but we have someone here who, who has. So, Lachlan, would you say that, that your experimental physics has deepened your love of creation? 
Well, I think so. Um, and I, I think I, I often use words like awe and wonder. It certainly deepened and heightened my, my sense of amazement at the natural world. And, and that, is, that is really connected to what you're talking about, to, to a love for it. Although that's probably not a phrase that I've, I've typically used much in the past, but I, I think it's accurate. Mm. Mm. Uh, th something else that I observed, um, we haven't even really talked about arts today. Yeah. And there are examples from the Bible that we could, we could touch on. But I, I did notice a connection in that I think the, the highest forms of art display a very deep understanding of the subject matter. Mm. And what you reminded me of when you were talking about this, uh, pure mathematics uh, was nothing so much as artistic expression. Yeah. They're, they're not so dissimilar, as you, of course, love to. Yeah, I mean, I, I could ride this hobby horse well into the evening. But the, no, it is, it is no accident that at most universities you can study a maths major as part of a Bachelor of Arts. And it's a thing that that has been around for a long time this this quite obvious connection between these activities maths maths is very useful in the sciences it's in some ways the language of the physical sciences but mathematics itself is more like poetry where where you are getting genuinely interesting aesthetic appeal by actually breaking or discarding some of the conventional rules of grammar and language. Ken, we, we explored a bit of poetry recently. Poetry is to language uh, a bit like what mathematics is to science. Uh, that, that's something that, that I feel fairly strongly, and I didn't realize as a school student, and, and it's only become more apparent to me as I've dug in uh, in subsequent years to access some of these things you know, at a, uh, at a slightly more advanced level because of my own quirky and broken mind that makes me obsessed and interested with these things. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, it's very interesting. The, the connections go, go very, very deep. And, and I, guess, I guess we have focused a little bit on science partly because I've steered us in that direction, uh, being a scientist myself, partly because our Adventist church tends to and a lot of the Christian church tends to be slightly more wary of science than it is of art. And I guess that would be another discussion. I would, I would be very interested to know if any of you listeners have thoughts or comments to add in on that one, the slightly asymmetric perception. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? I think I'd probably challenge that proposition. Uh, I think it depends on what area you're talking about as to whether or not Christians and Seventh-day Adventists in particular are wary of either the arts or science. I think there is an attitude amongst some that would say, well, the arts are just a waste of time. Um, uh, they have no eternal ah. purpose. Um, uh, they're just uh, really pseudo-entertainment. Uh, and, and, mm. and so there's, there's, there's no need for them. What we need is uh, a good, clear understanding of doctrine uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, that will get us to heaven. Um, and yeah, a clip yeah. about the ear. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and yes, we are wary of science in some areas uh, where we see it associated with words like evolution and that sort of thing. Uh, and perhaps with sometimes amongst some people with words like psychiatry or um, uh, things like that. But then 
we, we embrace science um, uh, with health and medicine. Yeah. Uh, so th- yeah. I think there's a real paradox or, or, or at least a, a, a split in, in, in the way that we approach it. So I mean, it's easier to embrace something when it aligns with your yeah. preconceived <laughs> yes. notions and much harder to do so when it appears to mm. contradict them. But I would, I would say this. Uh, this is something that I've thought about for a long time, and I defy anyone to prove me wrong on this. It is an act of faith to conduct scientific research. Because if God created the universe, then every truth that is revealed about it is a truth from God. What is there to fear from understanding more about the world for someone of faith? Mm. It is a lack of faith to be afraid of it. Yeah, that's nice. And then you could almost make, I don't know, this might be overstepping it. You could almost make a mirror statement about art, Luke, if it is true that art is an exploration uh, to some degree of human, the human mind, imagination and culture. Then if, if God created the human mind, what are we afraid of there? Whatever is true is of God. Yeah. And the highest forms of art are always about revealing truths. Um, and if you want an example of how art can serve spirituality, there's, there's nothing clearer than our podcast where we talked about the, the poem that Ken shared. Yeah, well, let's, let's pick that as the reason why we focus slightly on science on this episode. We'll say it's because we've, we've given... Um, art in the form We've of We've solved poetry. that problem already. <laughs> We've given it some good airtime. Of course, it's a bad excuse because uh, some of us are a bit obsessed with science and we keep bringing it up in many episodes. But It's quite appropriate to do that. I wonder whether if we're approaching somewhere near the end, uh, you almost use these exact words, Luke, um, and they are the words from Philippians 4 and verse 8. And it says this, Finally, brothers... Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. Yeah, that's beautiful, Ken. I think we'll leave it there. So thanks, Ken, for that really beautiful reading to wrap up. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We encourage you to write to us with comments. Uh, email sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com if you've got anything you want to share with us. Uh, if it's a thought you'd like to um, bounce off a wider audience, we're very happy to integrate it into a future episode. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us for next week's Sabbath School From Home podcast.